transition into our message. Uh, I just want to mention a few things. First, is in your bulletin this morning, you should have, uh, you'll see this. Again, I just want to draw attention to what this is. Some of you know, if you're here week in, week out, you likely know what this is. If not, um, one of the things that we are convinced of as a church, our leadership team, uh, you get around people here at this church, you'll find an excitement around this, and we're convinced of it more than anything, is that when you engage God, encounter him for yourself, you are going to find life. He is going to show up and work in in magnificent ways if you just test him, step towards him. Uh, In other words, don't just come here and grab God here on Sunday morning, which is so important, but learn to Get into the Word of God for yourself and talk to Him and listen to Him. Uh, so because it's that important, we put a lot of time and energy uh, into, into helping you do that. So that, that pamphlet is a reading plan. It runs right along uh, with our sermon series uh, that gives you opportunity to dive in with the things that we're talking about and the passages to look at for yourself throughout the week. We also have the journal. Some of you know about that. That is out there as well. If you want to take it a little step further, not just read it, but really journal and kick that around. Next thing I want to mention, next week, I just want to give a quick promo for this. Next week, we start our series on marriage, and I cannot wait. It's going to be an exciting series. It's going to be a good series, a challenging series. I will throw this out. Last night... Uh, my kids were getting ready to go to bed, and we were talking about church. You know, over the summer, we've had off uh, for the, the, the Sunday school, the month of August. And so we're talking about going back to the two hours, and one of them says, oh, do we have to go to church? And I said, um, yeah, why? He goes, you're going to talk about marriage. He thought it was starting today. I don't need to learn about marriage. And so <laughs> I understand that. There is a lot of single people here in this room. And so here's the thing. We're excited about this series. And even if you're single, I hope you're excited. Uh, because, again, we aren't going to neglect the single in the room. Uh, we're going to talk to all of us through the lens. Uh, we're going to talk, talk about the lens of marriage through all of us, uh, the single included. Uh, so, again, I want to throw that out. But this morning, don't want to bypass this morning because this morning, I believe with all my heart, uh, God's going to do something special this morning. Um, this morning, what we want to do is recenter and kind of just come back to what it is that this church is really all about. What's the core message of Bethany Grace Fellowship? You know, if I took a sticky note and stuck it up here in the wall, uh, that thing would stick for a while. But after time, the note soon falls off. And so every now and then, we in life need, just need to come back and pick the note back up and stick it back on and say, this is what we're all about. So I want to kind of do that this morning and kind of kick around what Bethany is about. Now, there's a number of ways we could say this. Uh, will you hear us talk about our mission is to introduce people to Jesus, embrace them as family, and help them to grow. You'll hear us kick that around. You'll hear us talk about Jesus, period. Jesus plus nothing equals everything is another phrase uh, that we can use. Uh, but the phrase that I've learned uh, to capture all of that and really capture the heart of this church and really the phrase that I believe keeps us focused on Jesus more than anything else is this phrase you see in the screen, um, God is for you. Now, this is a passionate uh, heart of mine in this church. Now, when I say God is for you, when I say God, who I'm referring to, just to bring us all kind of on, on equal ground, when I say God, I'm talking about the creator of the universe, uh, the, the, the all-powerful, almighty, great, magnificent creator God. Uh, he is a great God. I'm also talking about a God who is a good God. Uh, so he's great means he's able to work. He's good means he wants to work. I believe with all my heart that the scriptures teach that God has created every single human being in this room, every human being that you encounter, every human being that's ever walked on this globe, he's created them in his image. And what that means is he he can have a, he desires a relationship with you. You are created to relate to him. You mirror him at at a very profound capacity. 
And he understands that when he, when you value him, when you move towards him, you are going to have life and have it to the full. When you put him as, as the chief value of your heart and life, the thing that captures your imagination and captures your thinking and your heart. He looks down and says, you know what? Second Peter says this. He says, I don't want anyone to perish. I'm patient. I haven't rushed the end of the world to its, to its uh, climax. I haven't, haven't brought all that to, to, to head yet because I want people to come to me. God is for you. Now, when I put that up there, I'm not sure how that hits you. How does it, how does it hit you? I mean, I know how it hit me uh, for years. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a Christian everything. I mean, it was Christian all around me. Uh, my grandfather actually planted and started the church that I grew up in. That church grew to over 1,000 people, a, a large church. My dad was an elder at that church and a leader for years. Uh, so I was at the church every time the doors were open. More than just going to church there, I also went to school there. I went to a Christian school from uh, preschool until eighth grade at that church. So for six days of the week, I was in that building. Uh, some weeks it was seven days because of the different events and things going on. Christian all around me. But the thing that I came to realize as I've matured and I've grown, I knew God. I knew the Bible, but I didn't really know God. Oh, I could tell you everything. I could quote verses to you. I could tell you all the doctrinal deep truths of scripture, but I didn't really experience God. I didn't have life. There was, in other words, there was a piece inside of me that was just kind of, there was a nag. There was something missing. Uh, some of you have heard my story. I went off through high school in my young adult years and tried to fill that void. Tried to go and, and say, okay, I want life. And, and this Christian thing isn't giving me life. It's drudgery. It's horrible. It's, it's anything but life. And Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. And I, I had something to do with it. So I really kind of walked away. And I'm trying to figure this thing out. Is God really good? Now, through a lot of pain and misery and made a mess of things, uh, my younger sister graduated and went up to a Bible school in upstate New York, and she got this whole school praying for me, the entire school, 900 or so students. Uh, before long, I'm attending there. God answers their prayers. Now, as I'm attending there, the things still didn't change fully. I'm reading the scriptures every day. They taught me how to have a personal quiet time, how to spend time with God and encounter him. We sat through missions conferences. I started to get trained and work at a thing called snow camp. And, I'm, and I'm, I had an opportunity to lead young people to Jesus Christ. And, and I'm getting all excited. I, I'm going to the streets of New York City and working with children and preaching the gospel in the corners uh, right across. I remember the first time I ever did it, right across Madison. In Square Garden, I, I'm handed a paintbrush and a board, and I just start talking to the streets as people gather around. And I'm, I'm doing all this stuff, and I'm hearing all these Bible teachers, and I still deep inside of me have this nag. I'm still not quite finding life. Now, one of the assignments that we had to do there at the school was we had to read from Genesis to Revelation throughout the year. Uh, and as we read, we, after each chapter, uh, we had to give it our own title. Uh, so after reading Genesis chapter 1, we had to kind of think, okay, if I put that, if I took all the content of chapter 1, this is the title I would give it, and whole way through. Now, this was a hard assignment, and it was honestly very boring. I didn't like it a lot. Uh, so, but I want to share with you a passage. It's a passage I've shared before. I'm going to come back around because this passage opened this one up for me. Here's how it happened. I'm sitting in my desk. Uh, it's this tiny little cabin. There's six of us in this cabin. There's a lake right out off the porch. And I'm sitting there one uh, late afternoon. I'm just rubbing my forehead. I'm bored. I'm reading through the scriptures. And all of a sudden, I come to it. I read this passage, and suddenly, bang, 
all kinds of things start spinning inside my head, and God showed up for me. So I want to take us there, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verses 20 to 25. It's page 275, and the Bible's there in the seats in front of you. Now, as you turn, I knew where I was with God. I, I was honest with the, the tension and the turmoil inside of me. So I'm wondering, if I just want to invite you, if you'd be willing to be honest this morning yourself. Don't need to tell the people around you. Just right now in your heart and mind, I want you to grab uh, some answers. Number one, when you, when you hear God is good, how do you feel? Uh, do you agree? Do you not agree? Do you wrestle with it? Do you say yes or do you say, I'm not sure? Now to help us do this, I want to throw some questions up. We've put these questions up a couple times here on Sunday morning. These are questions that our staff uses regularly. We consistently come around these questions uh, throughout the year. Matter of fact, it's even on their yearly review, believe it or not. We, we bring these questions up just to say these are the questions that we want to use to make sure we keep this message central. So again, if you'd give me the honor, just, just wrestle with these. How does God feel about you right now? Right now at 9.30ish. On September 11th, 2016, at 400 Reading Road, East Earl, or if you listen online, wherever you're at around the world, right now, this moment in time, how does God feel about you? Now, no right or wrong answers on this. This isn't a right or wrong thing. This is just an honest thing. Are you willing to be honest? How does he feel? I mean, a perfectly acceptable answer right now would be, well, I think he's a little disappointed. Or you know what? (laughs) Adam, I know he's for me, but I'm not really sure he likes me. Or he's discouraged, or he's grieved, or he's angry, or he loves me, or he's wild about me. All answers, just be honest with where you're at. Now, the second question I think is even more important, and it goes like this. This is what we ask our staff. How do you determine God's feeling for you? So, so you have your first answer. Now, how did you determine that answer? What did you base your answer on? Really be honest. Think about it. Write it down if you're brave enough, uh, but at least grab it in your mind. That first answer, say, if you say God is disappointed with me, what did you do? What, What lens are you looking through? What metric are you using to get that first answer? Okay, you have it in your mind? Maybe it's how your life is going, maybe it's your circumstances, maybe it's your health, maybe it's your, um, the, what you did last night, maybe it's what you did last year, maybe it's what you didn't do, maybe it's what you should be doing. I don't know. Whatever it is, what did you do to, to grab that answer? Now, the third question, I think, is the kind of the one that brings it home for us. How or what is your answer, is it focused on? Is your answer focused on your actions or on God's? So how does God feel about you? What did you do to do? What lens did you look through to get that answer? And then look at that, and, and is that answer, so in other words, is your answer, well, you know what? Um, I did blank. Well, that's focused on you. Versus God did blank. That's focused on God. So your answer, is it focused on God's work, or is it focused on your work to determine how God feels about you? Does that make sense? So you have, your, have, your, have the thoughts there. Coming back to how does God feel about you. Now, hold those thoughts and let's jump into 2 Samuel 22. To do that, I want to move backwards to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Just kind of set the stage to 22. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to kind of set the story real quick for you. This is David. For those of you, again, bring us off to the same place. David was the greatest king in the nation of Israel. David was called, said to be a man after God's own heart. David was anointed as a young man to be king. David is the guy who killed Goliath. Some of you know that story. David is the guy who united the nation of Israel and brought the most powerful Israel we've ever seen in its history um, to bear. Uh, David was so, so influential that it was actually said, a prophecy was given, 
That in his lineage would come the Messiah, would come this character named Jesus that we talk about a lot, uh, that comes in the lineage of David. David was an influential, powerful leader. He was a man after God's own heart. He chased after God. Now, the thing that's interesting is when you read David's, when you read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, the story that really captures David's life, it's a historical narrative as it lays the story out. When you read the story, you're going to see God moment after God moment after God moment show. God's just showing up and doing these miraculous things in David's life, and he's chasing after God with all his heart. I mean, even the story of Goliath. Many of you know the story, right? Everyone's afraid, and, and they're all back there, and, and, and Goliath is taunting them, and he stops there and says, what is this? What is this, guys? You're going to let this guy mock our God? And he steps out, and God does some really cool stuff through him. Now, when you start getting into 2 Samuel, the God moments get less and less. And David, I believe, what many of us miss this, when you just read it through this lens, read, when you go back through chapter 10, chapter 9, chapter 8, the God moments, David is drifting. He's kind of shifted into this autopilot almost when you don't see these radical moments as much. Till you point to, you get to chapter 11, and he, it opens up in chapter 11, and it says, it's at the time of year when kings are off at war. And David's not off at war. He's at home because he's been drifting. His heart has grown cold at some level. Now, David, it says in chapter 11 that he couldn't sleep. So he wakes up at night, and I don't know what time it is. It doesn't say. He's, he's probably pacing. He's trying to figure out how to get back to sleep. There's stuff tormenting in him and his heart and mind. And he walks out on the balcony, looks out over his kingdom. And I don't know what's going through his mind, if he's thinking about his great, powerful kingdom, if there's fears in his heart. Or, but he looks down, and he sees a beautiful young lady. So he calls a servant, and he says, hey, go get her for me. Now, the servant's not a fool, the servant knows when you're bringing a young lady to your chambers late at night, well, he, she, he knows what David wants to do. So he says, no, 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 wait a minute, David. Do you know that that's Uriah's wife? Now, pause. Uriah is a close friend of David's. Uriah is out doing battle for David and the nation of Israel. Uriah is standing beside David and has stood beside David through some really tough stuff. He says, do you know that's Uriah's wife? Yeah, I do. Go get her. So they do their thing. Word gets back to David. Some time elapses, work gets back to him, and hey, David, Bathsheba is her name. She says, I'm pregnant. Now, David does what most of us have a tendency to do. We, oh, shoot, let's hide it. Let's cover up. I'm caught. I can't let the kingdom know. So he sets out on this mission. So he immediately calls Uriah in from battle. Many of you know this story. And, and he says, Uriah, he butters him up. He flatters him. Uriah, you're, you're doing such an awesome job. I'm getting such good reports of you out in the field. You know what? You deserve a break. Just go home. Relax with your wife. Kick your feet up. I mean, have a good time. Well, he doesn't go home. He doesn't go. He lays on the doorstep of the palace and says, I can't do this, David. I belong. My duty, my call right now is to be out serving out on the battlefield. So David freaks out. and He's like, oh, my goodness. Let's get him drunk. I know. Let's get him drunk. So they throw a big party. They get, they get him loaded with alcohol. He still doesn't go home. So David thinks, oh, my goodness. This guy, I mean, what is his devotion? It's just, well, we've got to do something about this. So he sends him back out to battle. And he sends him out to battle with a note in his hand. It's, his, it's the note. It's the, death, it's the death warrant. He hands it to the general. And the general, that on the note, reads the note. It says, go out and attack. Put Uriah in the front lines. When the battle gets heavy, pull back. In other words, murder Uriah. Now, so here we've got adultery. We've got murder. A lot of lying and covering up. Poor integrity. Now, let me ask a question. How does God feel about David. How do you determine that? Is it based on 
David's work, your answer, or God's work for David? How does God feel about him? Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 22. With that in our mind. Now, scholars, let me throw a little objection in here because scholars will throw this out. If you read, pull out some commentaries and some, do some research on this chapter, you're going to hear a scholar say 2 Samuel 22 is actually Psalm 18. It's, it's word for word Psalm 18. And Psalm 18 is likely believed to have been written at the early part of David's life when he's having all those great God moments. I say, yeah, that's true. But First and Second Samuel are historical narratives. They're not written by David. They're written by Samuel and likely Nathan, the prophet, who confronts David in his sin. This is the guy who covers, who calls David out. So, and look at where they place Psalm 18 is at the end of David's life. It's no mistake. It's here for a very key reason because it captures the heart of David's life. So let's read it with that lens. The end of David's life. 2 Samuel 22, verse 20. He led me to a place of safety. He rescued me. Now look at this, look at this. Remember the question, how does God feel about David? He rescued me because he what? What does it say? Say it. He delights in me. Turn to the people aside. You just say he delights in me. Go ahead, tell them. Some of you aren't, didn't say that very confidently. Some of you aren't too sure about that. But David is here writing, and David says, he delights in me. Is that how you answered? How does God feel about you? Did any of you say that? He delights in me. I know I struggled over the years to say that. I had a hard time saying that. I had long, dark nights of the soul when I wrestled, and I wrestled to say that statement. He delights in me. Now, let's keep reading. Look at verse 21. The Lord rewarded me for doing right. Okay, he's, David did a lot of good in his life. I get that. He restored me because of my, oh, wait a minute. This is where, as I was reading on that cold, wintry day in upstate New York, I'm reading, I'm like, because of your innocence? Verse 22, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. Now, at this point, as I'm sitting there at my desk, and at this point, my hand is, I'm no longer leaning in my hand, and I'm at full attention, and I'm reading this, and I'm like, What? Continue reading, for I've kept the ways of the Lord. I have not turned from my God to follow evil. I have followed all of his regulations. I have never abandoned his decrees. Let's pause a minute. Many of you know the Ten Commandments, right? (laughs) Did David not violate a number of them? Thou shalt not murder. Uh, Sorry, David, (laughs) you violated a decree. Uh, That's a big one. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Sorry, David, you violated that. Thou shalt not bear false testimony. Sorry, David, you violated it. Thou shalt not look at your neighbor's wife and covet her. Sorry, David, you literally violated that. She was your true neighbor. But when you read this and you think, what in the world? I have not turned from my God to follow evil. Verse 23, I have followed all his regulations. I have never abandoned his decrees. Verse 24, I am blameless before God. Now you stop there and think, you're blameless? Really, David? And when I first thought about this, I thought, well, maybe this is kind of like those, you know, you ever go to a funeral and the character up in front in the coffin was a real character <laughs> and there isn't a lot of positive to say about him. You ever been to one of those funerals? And, you're, and, and so you say, hear people get up and they just start saying stuff and you're like, do you know the same guy that I knew? Because that's not what other guy I knew. You ever have one of them? So I'm thinking, well, maybe this is at the end of David's life and Nathan just wants everyone to just, David's about ready to go into the grave and let's just, let's just end David's life with a big rosy, he was awesome 
kind of speech. But I don't think that's what's happening. Look at verse 24 again. I have blameless before God. I have kept myself from sin. The Lord rewarded me. Here it is again. He comes back around to what he started with. The Lord had rewarded me for doing right. Now here is the key. He has seen my innocence. If some of you have different translations, it talks about, it says, in his sight. It talks about God looking at David through his lenses, not David's lenses. God has seen my innocence. Now, let's unpack a few things here and try and push this deep. Um, Start with Acts chapter 13, verse 22. It says this of David, but God removed Saul. He was the first king of Israel. He was kind of started out great, went bad, uh, and replaced him with David. And look what it says about David. Here's why David was chosen. David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And when I think about that, I think, what makes a man? He's the only man in Scripture that I'm aware of, from Genesis to Revelation, that that statement is ever made. Ever. Why? What makes him a man after God's own heart? I believe it's he understands God is for him. And I believe it's because he looks at his life through the lens God looks, not his own. I believe David understood grace and forgiveness like no other character in Scripture. David learned to key in on God's performance for him rather than his performance for God. You know how I know this? Let's, let's, if you allow me, can we do a review through Hebrews? We did it all, we were there all summer. Some of you are like, oh, Adam, I thought that book was done and we moved on. All right, let's just bring it back one, one more time here. Let's just, let's just review, we'll do a quick review. If you allow me, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, it says this. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Okay, so how, do you, how are you made right? How are you made holy? Okay, so there's this holy, magnificent, great, mind-blowing God that just, that just takes the lid off of our hearts and our minds. We can't fully fathom him. And you know, okay, I want a connection with him. Well, to have a connection, I need to be made holy. I need to be right. I need to obey his decrees. I mean, David understands I am innocent. I've obeyed. He, he, he lives up to what God wants. You need to be holy and blameless. How do you do that? For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Now, here's the key. I don't know if Chris preached on this. I forget if he did this. I, I don't know, but I'm going to. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's back up a few verses. Guess who the author quotes. Take a guess. Who might he quote? David. He's going to quote Psalm 40. Okay? Now, let's, so let's back up and look at what he says. That, okay, these are the verses that lead in to once for all time. Jesus is what makes you holy. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God. So Psalm 40 is a messianic psalm is what it's called. So David is writing, and it's foreshadowing something that Jesus is going to say. That's... Just gave you a little kind of, that's what a messianic psalm is. So here's Psalm 40. You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God. And this is written about me in the scriptures. Now, as I think about this, so, so David, so Psalm, or, or Hebrews chapter 10 is quoting Psalm 40 and using this statement of David. And it sounds a lot like Psalm 51. 
Here's Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is what was written after Nathan the prophet shows up to David and says, David, you think you got away with that sin. The baby's about to be born that Bathsheba's been carrying from the adultery. The baby's about to come and Nathan shows up and says, David, you think you got away with it. You think no one knows. Guess what? God knows. So Nathan confronts this guy and then David goes and writes Psalm 51. Now, it sounds a lot like what we just read in Hebrews chapter 10. Look, there's just one sample of it. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17. You do not desire a sacrifice. Didn't we just hear that? Didn't Psalm 40, God, you don't want bulls and goats and blood. That's not what you're looking for. Or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is, a, is what? what? Look at it. Is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. You know what I have to say to all of us? We're all in hot water. Amy said, if you caught an interview, we're all a mess. And I love how she even gets teary as she thinks about it. All of us are sinners. Every single one of you, and I don't care how much good work you do to scrub it away, you are still a sinner. You are still radically separated from a holy God, no matter how good you think you are. God says, I don't want bulls and goats, and I don't want your money coming to the church. I don't want all this stuff. It's not what makes you right. Remember we talked, that's a ring pop. God says, I want the real thing. I want you. The problem is you are a sinner. So what does he say? Repent. Repent. Be broken over your sin. And I've provided a solution. Come to me for that solution. Because I'm for you. David, I believe, gets this more than any other character in the scriptures. I have a broken heart. God, I know you don't want anything but me, and all I can come to you with is a broken heart. Is that all you bring to Jesus? I find what I have a tendency to do, you know, my answer to that question, uh, how does God feel about you? Well, that'll vary depending on the season. Um, How do you determine that? Here's how I determine that. You know what most of my answers are? Well, man, God, I haven't been very good at my quiet time. You know what? I was kind of short with my kids yesterday. Man, I had a fight with my wife uh, two nights ago. Oh, man, God, you know what? I haven't been real good at giving. God, you know what? I'm really struggling with a lot of worry and anxiety right now. Oh, you must really be disappointed with me. God's like, Adam, you can't bring enough goodness to me to make me happy with you. Repent. Come to me with a broken heart, understanding that I need to work in you. And here's how this works. He who has been forgiven much does what? Some of you know this verse. He who has been forgiven much loves much. This is how this works. So then, because God doesn't want me living like a pagan and running around doing all, he doesn't want that, but he knows that I will never do the right things until my heart is transformed, until I begin. I will naturally do those things when I understand what I'm forgiven and I grasp his grace and his mercy. And I come to a place where I just repent with a broken heart. David got this. I think that's what makes David a man after God's own heart. You know, Matt Chandler, a pastor down in uh, Texas, here's, let me, I found this cool quote this week. He says, the marker of those who understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, when they stumble and fall, they run to God, not from him. Let me ask you a question. When you stumble and fall, where do you go? Do you know what I find most of us do? I think most of us are really good at hiding. Aren't we? Oh, we love hiding. I mean, we do it a lot. I mean, uh, sorry, Dad. I mean, that's how it was when you gave it to me. I don't know how that thing broke. Uh, honey, a dent on the car? Really? 
No, no, nothing. I must have been when I was at the grocery store. Someone must have backed into me. No, officer. I have no idea how fast I was going. We're just friends. I mean, I'm married after all. I mean, we're just friends. Or my internet history? I, I didn't know you could erase your history. What do you mean internet? Incognito tab? I, mean, I know nothing about that. Or I'm just, I'm good. I'm fine. Or <laughs> I never got the email. You ever hear that one? What did you ever send the email? I mean, it, it's, it's amazing how we run and we hide. And the real marker are those, when we make a mistake, those who understand grace and understand Christ and understand that God is for them, know that, you know what? I'm going to come back. I'm going to move in his direction. Matt Chandler goes on to say, they run to God, not from him, because they clearly understand that their acceptance before God is not predicated upon their behavior, but on the righteous life of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death. John Burke, another pastor in Texas, a lot of good pastors in Texas. Uh, John Burke's another one. He says, until we believe that God is for us, not against us, we will keep running and hiding. We'll hide. We'll hide all over the place. Now, here's the cool thing. Here's the cool thing. Here's why this is so important. Hebrews chapter 10 continues. Let me jump back in Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 14. I love this verse. This verse will give you a headache. (laughs) Seriously. Really look at this verse. If you really pay attention to this verse, it'll it'll make you scratch your head. Look at this. So again, remember, it kind of leads through David's life. Once for all time, it's Jesus, period. Then it goes to this verse. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. You see it? Does it make you scratch your head? You're like, no, wait a minute. What does that mean? So look at this. For by that one offering, Jesus Christ, that's what he wants, Jesus Christ, he forever made perfect. So if you believe in Jesus, if you have that, let me just stop here. You know what burdens me is sometimes people just kind of think, well, I'm a Christian because I've always been a part of the Christian thing. I would challenge you. Do you know for certain do you know, do you, can you, you don't always, I don't think you always have to have that date or that time lock, but do you know for certain that your faith and your trust is in the person of Jesus Christ? Now, once that happens, look what it says. He forever made perfect. He forever made perfect. So if you're a believer in Jesus, you are forever perfect. Preach that to your heart when you stumble and fall. Positionally, God looks down and says, Adam is perfect. Look at the rest of the verse, though. He forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Now, you're like, no, wait a minute. Um, he made me perfect, but he's still making. It's, 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 see the two tenses? So it's, so it's the already, I'm already perfect, but I'm yet not yet perfect. Now, how does all this work? So he forever makes perfect those who are being made holy. <laughs> you're like, no, wait a minute. Well, here's why. Because even though you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are, you still have got a sin nature. That'll be with you till you're home in glory with him in heaven. And you've got an enemy named Satan. Until he's locked up and the key's thrown away and he's, he's, in, that, he's in that abyss forever and ever, always, he's hunting you down. So you're still struggling. But here's what I think this verse, if I could say this verse a different way, here's how I would say it. True Christian growth happens when I believe God is in love with me. I don't believe Christians, we talk about as a church, we want you to grow. Our passion is to walk with people, to help you to grow. I struggle to see Christian growth happening unless and until you believe God is significantly, delights in you and is in love with you. 
Because in that moment, when you say, okay, God is for me, I have been forever made perfect in Jesus, period, he then, then the process begins to work. I, again, another way to say this, forgiven much, loves much, is, is the way Luke, the, the gospel writer, says it. I've forgiven much, I love much. I understand what God has done for me. I understand that positionally I am righteous. I will preach that to my heart all day long. Yes, God, I know I blew it. Yes, God, I know I did this, but I know you delight in me because I know you are for me. So because of that, I'm not going to run and hide. I'm going to once again repent. I'm going to seek that forgiveness, and I'm going to walk back towards you. And that is when Christian growth happens. Not when we gut it out, rutch it out, think, okay, God, here I go. I don't feel it, but I'm going to do it. Gosh darn it, we're going to get this thing done. That's not how Christian growth happens. At times we need to do that. I'm not against that at times, but I don't want to live there. True growth comes when I understand that my creator God in heaven is for me. Now, here's the struggle with this. Often we find Jesus useful to get the things that our hearts find beautiful. Illustrate that, and this is what will kind of bring us to a close. read a story recently of a pastor who um, had a mom with a 16-year-old daughter, and the 16-year-old daughter was struggling with this deep depression. And so the mom brings the daughter to the pastor, thinking the pastor is going to fix her all up and make her good. And so the pastor's sitting there listening to this girl just, just grieve. And, and the pastor, she's wearing long sleeves, and the pastor asks her actually to pull her sleeves up. And, and the pastor can see the cut marks and all the stuff. And the pastor's hearing this sword story of, of things that she's doing to just soothe the pain. And so the pastor steps in and begins to talk about Jesus. And the girl immediately responds, I know Jesus loves me. I know Jesus died for me. I know he rose again, and I know one day I'm going to be in heaven because I believe that. But you know what? That does me no good when the boys in school won't even look my direction. Now, I love the way the pastor wrote about this because he said it's very normal. He's not like, oh, I mean, it's, it's normal. It's a 16-year-old girl. Yet it's also very revealing. And here's what it reveals, and I think most of us do this. Most of us look to Jesus to get the things that our heart finds beautiful. We don't look to Jesus because he's beautiful. What we have a tendency to do is is this girl, we look to the things, we look to boys, in this girl's case, to console us, to make us okay. The boys become our foundation. The boys energize us. That's where my joy and that's where my worth and that's where my value is. Well, here's what I have learned. Well, that means that girl knows Jesus, but she's never experienced him. She doesn't really know him. Jesus is not the thing that has captured her imagination. Jesus is not the the value of her heart. Jesus is not the thing that that gives her worth and identity. Oh, sure, it's hard to walk through as a 16-year-old girl and be made fun of by the boys. It's hard. Where is my worth? Or materialistic people, our culture, man, we're loaded. We love it, materialism. Um, Materialistic people often find security of money is more spiritually real than the security of God's loving and wise provision and providence. I made a comment last week that a couple of you actually commented on. It was just in the offering time, and I said, man, how often I sit down in the checkbook and I'm overwhelmed with anxiety. And all I'm saying at that time is that money is more real to me. That money, I think, is going to give me more joy. That money is more beauty. That money has captured my imagination more than Jesus Christ has. And as a church, we are saying we want to stand on the message that it's Jesus, period. Not all this other stuff is going to give you life. Jesus, period. That's why we'll say it this way. We're a church that's going to preach to the believer. We talk to the Christians. That's what we're passionate about. We're a church. We're a body. We're the body of Christ. But we're going to do it through the lens of the non-Christian. We're not going to do that because we understand 
understand like Amy talked about because you're inviting your friends and we want, we expect people to be sitting here with us. We expect this morning, some of you sitting here right now that are never even know, you don't know anything about Jesus. But you know else why we do this? I'm afraid too many churches move away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, they'll teach you how to budget. They'll teach you how to do marriage. They'll teach you how to do all kinds of good stuff. They'll talk. They'll teach the Bible. They'll teach Hebrews. They'll teach Peter and James and John. And they'll teach, they'll teach this stuff. But all the while, they're graduating from the gospel. And we as a church say we never want to move past capturing the heart, the imagination. We want people not just to know Jesus, but to experience him, to step in and truly value him at a core foundational place that gives true worth and value. Let me give an invitation to you. Psalm 139. I'm going to go to prayer with this. Psalm 139 says this. This is the well-known, some of you know this, and I put it in a new living because the new living, I think, nails it. I think most translations translate this psalm pretty poorly, uh, this verse anyway. Um, this is the verse that talks about where can I get from you? God's formed me in my mother's womb, and, and it's talking about all this thought. And then it says this, how precious, most translations say how precious, how precious are my thoughts of you, God, but that doesn't make sense with the rest of the verse then. The New Living turns it, I think, and grabs the Hebrew. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God? They cannot be numbered. If you're sitting here right now and, and you're wondering, I don't know, the boys don't like me, my husband doesn't like me, my wife doesn't like me, I, I, I'm not sure if I fit in, I'm not sure. I'm just so, here's what I want to just tell you right now. God is for you. His thoughts are, are numerous. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand, and when I wake up, you are still with me. God, I can't get away from you. Your thoughts are on me. Now, another psalm. Uh, these are all David, by the way. I, I grabbed all this, this heart of David. Uh, my heart has heard you say, and look at this. Have you heard God ever say this to you? My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. Right now, the God, the creator of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth is looking at you and saying, come and talk with me. I am for you. I am for you. Come, come to me. Come and talk. And I love his response, Lord, I'm coming. The psalm goes on. It's a great psalm. Psalm 27 is just a powerful psalm. Uh, here's two other verses from it. Yes, I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I'm here in the land of the living. So in other words, I'm not off in eternity yet. I'm not in heaven. I'm still here with flesh and bones. But I am confident that I will see the Lord's goodness while I'm here in the land of the living. Preach that to your heart. I'm confident of this. And then I love how it ends. Wait patiently for the Lord. Some again, this psalm, David understands it. Life is hard. We don't always see with our human eyes. The, I love how we, we talked in Hebrews, gaining that perspective. We don't always see the earth, the heavenly perspective. But the psalmist says, I'm confident, God, that I'm going to see your goodness while I'm here in the land of living. So I'm going to wait patiently for the Lord. I'm going to be brave and courageous. I love that. It takes courage. It takes real bravery to preach to the heart, God, you're for me. God, it's Jesus, period. When your heart is screaming at you, you know what you did last night? Do you know what you plan to do tomorrow? You know what you did 10 years ago? Our hearts scream at us, you are not worthy. And it takes courage to stand up, and it takes faith to look in the face of that and say, no, my God says that because Jesus died for me, and I put my faith in him, and I've come to him with a broken and contrite spirit, and I've repented, he is for me. It takes courage to do that. 
And then it ends, yes, wait patiently for the Lord. So I'm going to pray. Number one, as I pray, I just want to say, uh, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I mean, it's, this is the time when you cross the line, when you step in and you say, now I'm going to do business. It's a simple thing is just pray, God, I know you're real. Something along those lines about acknowledging him. I know you're holy. I know I'm a sinner. I put my trust in Jesus to fix that problem. That's all it is. And for those of you that are sitting here and say, yeah, I know I'm a Christian. I encourage you to pray this. I'm confident. Preach to your heart. I'm confident that I will see the Lord's goodness while I'm here in the land of the living. And God, I'm going to wait for you to do your work, and I'm going to be courageous and brave as I do it, and I'm going to preach to my heart that God is for me. It's the heart of this church. It's the heart that we want to journey with you on. It's not an easy journey. It takes courage, but we're here to walk with you. Let me pray. There's going to be a video just to give you time to reflect, and then we're going to wrap up uh, with, a, with a worship song to cement that in our hearts. God, we love you. We thank you. God, I'm not going to pray long. I just pray that in this next few moments as we watch this video, I pray that our hearts would be captured afresh and anew. And if there's anyone in this room that's never put their faith and trust in Jesus, that they would do that now. And then let someone know about it. And God, for those in this room that have already, that they know they're Christians, God, they've been walking with you. God, I pray that you would meet them in their hurt, in their pain, in their joy, in their frustration. And God, they would do the work and ask, why is it? that I think God feels that about me? Am I looking at my life through his lenses? Or am I looking at my life through my lenses? God, help us to look at life through your lenses. We love you. Thank you for Jesus. It's his name we pray. Amen.